please turn with me now in uh, God's Word uh, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Our scripture text uh, will be verses 14 through 22. Revelation chapter uh, 3, verses 14 through 22. We have been consecutively studying the book of uh, Revelation together. Uh, and we come to the seventh out of the seven letters to the churches uh, in Asia Minor. These letters were written from the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to the angel or to the pastor of each of the churches in each of these seven locations in what is now western Turkey. The Lord Jesus has very specific words for his church, and they are words which apply in every uh, age of the church. This particular letter is written to the church in Laodicea. This isn't the first time that Laodicea is mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Rather, they are mentioned by Paul in his letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, Laodicea at that time uh, seemed to be a vibrant church, Epaphras was their uh, pastor. In fact, it may even be that Epaphras was the one who founded the church in Laodicea. Uh, Paul even wrote the Laodiceans their own letter, which is mentioned in Colossians 4.16. It is a letter that is now lost. However, uh, the uh, the spiritual vitality of this church had declined significantly in the intervening uh, decades. This is now, of course, several decades after the book of Colossians was written. And now as the Apostle John records the words of Jesus Christ, it is this church in Laodicea which receives the severest condemnation. In fact, this is the only church out of the seven about which the Lord Jesus has nothing positive to say. And yet we are still going to see in these words of clear and sharp rebuke, uh, nonetheless, uh, the offers of mercy and of grace that are extended to this congregation, and indeed every congregation, uh, which turns in faith to the Lord Jesus. So let's now hear God's word, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may be Clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. In a sense, it's reading in God's word. Let's uh, look again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we indeed bless you and give you thanks for uh, your life-giving word. It is life-giving indeed. How faithful you are. The Lord, our God, we ask now that you would Uh, indeed give us ears to hear. As we close this section of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, we do indeed pray that the thing which is said at the end of each of these letters would be true of us, that we who has an ear, let him hear. Let us hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. So give us such ears today. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, I want you to think uh, just for a moment about a very uh, unpleasant experience, which probably many of you have had. It's not maybe pleasant to dwell on the unpleasant experiences in our lives. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, uh, this imagery is used here. Perhaps you have spent a day, some time outside in the very uh, warm heat of the summer. You spent that day maybe at a zoo or at a ballpark or uh, at an amusement park, or uh, some other uh, public uh, place. And you are thirsty. I mean, you are really thirsty. You're parched. And uh, somewhere, you spot a water fountain. You think, I'm going to go get a drink out of that water fountain. Finally, some water for my parched lips. So you walk up to the water fountain, you press the button, the water comes out, you put your lips to it, and... Oh, it's warm. It's, it's almost hot. It's, it's lukewarm, and it doesn't help at all. The one thing that you are craving, some cold, ice-cold, wonderful, pure water your lips are not experiencing. So what do you do? You probably take that water and you want to spit it right out. The same kind of thing that you might do if you thought you were going to drink good milk and the milk turned out sour instead. Or if you were eating what you thought was good meat, but it was spoiled meat instead. Your mouth can't tolerate it. It's nauseating to you. And immediately, uh, you uh, spit it out. Well, it's that same imagery Uh, that the Lord is using concerning the church at Laodicea. He is saying that this church, like that lukewarm water, had become nauseating to the Lord. They didn't realize it, but they were a lukewarm church. And as the Lord is going to describe, there are a few spiritual conditions that are worse than a lukewarmness. And so this whole letter will stand as a warning 
uh, to us today, a very necessary warning to the church of Jesus Christ uh, today. Two things I want us to consider. Uh, First of all, we're going to see Christ's charge of lukewarmness. Christ's charge of lukewarmness. Uh, Primarily, we'll see that in verses 15, 16, and 17. And then, lastly, I want us to consider Christ's counsels of grace. Christ's counsels, that is C-O-U-N-S-E-L-S, Christ's counsels of grace. And that will be seen primarily in verses 18 through 21. Well, first of all, a Christ's charge of lukewarmness. Uh, Laodicea, as a city, was situated very close to two other significant cities. Uh, One of them was Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was a city known for their hot springs. Uh, People would travel to uh, uh, Hierapolis uh, for uh, their warm, hot springs that were then used for healing and for medicinal purposes. Another city that was close to uh, Laodicea was the city of Colossae. Colossae. And Colossae uh, was blessed with a supply of pure, cold water. Refreshingly cold water. Uh, But Laodicea had neither of these. And so they had a little cleverness. They, uh, as they lacked a water supply, they thus devised a kind of clever aqueduct system to bring its water uh, from five miles away. But the problem with this aqueduct system was that by the time it got to Laodicea, uh, the water was lukewarm. It was tepid. It wasn't much good at that point. It was the best they could do, but it wasn't much good. And what the Lord Jesus is saying here, he is saying to them that much like your water supply, that the church in Laodicea has become lukewarm as well. I know your works, verse 15. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of uh, my mouth. Well, what he is referring to, surely, here is uh, the, this church's lack of zeal, love, and devotion uh, to Jesus Christ. They should have been hot, as it were, hot with zeal. And really, even though the word zeal contains that that idea of being burning hot, and that's what they should have been, zealous followers of Jesus Christ, bearing the continual fruit of a transformed life, living for Jesus Christ and for his kingdom. That's the kind of Christianity that you and I are called to. But he says here, it would have even better to, to be cold, than to be lukewarm. That idea of coldness probably refers to one who doesn't even make a profession of Jesus Christ, but lives a life that has no concern for God, distant. That's a terrible state to be in, but I think he's saying, well, at least in that case, your life matches with your profession. But to be lukewarm 
means that with your lips you are saying the highest and most elevated things concerning Jesus Christ. But your lives are reflecting just the opposite. That their professions of faith were contradicted by their apathetic, indifferent, complacent lives. You see, the church at Laodicea, it seems, was not troubled by any heresy. It wasn't that they were preaching and teaching falsehood or tempted to follow false doctrine. Rather, they were preaching and teaching the glorious gospel of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, but then had lives that said, all of this is a sham. There's nothing to it. They were hypocrites in their hearts. What an awful state it is to be in. And I think the Lord Jesus is saying here that this condition of complacency or lukewarmness about Jesus Christ is a dangerous condition and it is nauseating to the Lord. Again, everything about the gospel is just the opposite of a cold, dead lifeless existence. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that the living God has done so much for our salvation. He sent His own beloved Son to this earth who took that lowest place for our salvation, who was uh, willing to go all the way to the cross and who suffered and died for your, uh, on your behalf and on my behalf and what he gives to us is new life from the dead. That to become a Christian means to be taken out of death and brought into eternal life. It means to be part of a kingdom which shall never pass away. It means to have fellowship with the living God of the universe. You see, the gospel speaks of the infinite love and mercy and sacrifice of the living God. And it's something that calls for a transformed life. And so, to put on our lips these truths and yet to be unaffected by them is the worst of lies. As one writer has said, sham, pretense, and hypocrisy are the very opposite of what Jesus did uh, for us. This kind of listlessness of this church is a sign of their lifelessness. Well, how did this Laodicean church become so complacent about the Lord Jesus Christ? And verse 17 gives us a clue of what happened. It says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. There it is. Now, they may have said those words with their lips, or it may just be what they were thinking in their hearts. But in reality, in the first century, Laodicea was one of the most affluent cities in, the, uh, in that portion of the world. In fact, in AD 61, uh, the city suffered a massive earthquake. And when Rome offered assistance, Laodicea refused assistance. They said, we can rebuild the city by ourselves. And they did. They did from their own wealth. It was an affluent city, and likely many members of this church also had uh, some money. 
what seems to have happened is that this affluence, this material prosperity, had so gripped their souls that they had then become dead to God. Now, I hope you understand that wealth in and of itself is not sinful. And in fact, there are many wealthy Christians who have rightly understood that the money and possessions that they have are given to them by God as a stewardship. And they have used those, uh, those possessions for great good in service to Christ and his kingdom. Missionaries have been supported. The church has been uh, strengthened. Christian institutions like colleges and uh, orphanages and uh, other uh, Christian institutions have been funded by uh, people who have given of their wealth uh, for uh, these institutions. So much good has been done. So wealth itself is not sinful, but, and this is key, that wealth frequently has had uh, the effect of making a person self-focused and feeling self-sufficient and proud and their, their feeling of wealth has pushed out communion with the living God. And it is a real a danger. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Speaking of the church in Laodicea, he says that their souls were starving in the midst of their abundance. And I do think that this is a church, a word for the church of Jesus Christ uh, today. Are our souls starving in the midst of our abundance? You see, the problem with material things is that they are often deceptive. The Bible speaks of that, the deceitfulness of riches. That is, when we are surrounded by all of our stuff, the stuff that we want, and if our bank account has plenty of money in it or our stock portfolio is growing, we think life is good. Things are going well. That's often how we define a good life. But while we are thinking in our hearts, oh, life is going well, what then happens is that we are paying little attention to our souls. And in fact, it may be that our souls are very far from God. And we aren't exercising faith and dependence in Him. And we aren't seeking to grow in His Word and be of usefulness in His kingdom. And dear friends, that is a dangerous state to be in because no matter how much money you have, if your soul is far from God, things are not well with you. That's what it was the case with the church in Laodicea. They, had, they were the ones who had their lives together. These people had good jobs. They were making it in the world. They, were, uh, they had the things which they, which they hoped to have. They were going to live out good retirements. They had it all. And Jesus says, you guys are sick to me. You make me nauseous. Because... You think you can make it fine in life without cultivating a relationship with the living God. And the tragic thing about the church in Laodicea was that they didn't even realize how complacent they had become. 
See what that says in verse 17? He says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And all the while, you do not even realize, it says. You don't realize your real spiritual condition, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They had deceived themselves about where they were. The Lord Jesus was about to spit them out for their lukewarmness, and they thought everything was going just fine. And so, dear friends, it's crucial that we ask ourselves, how about my own soul? Is it true of me that I have become lukewarm concerning the things of Christ? Is my own soul taken up with material comforts, with material goals and desires, trying to reach the kind of lifestyle that I want to live, Has that consumed your soul? While all the while, your soul, in terms of its relationship to the Lord, is starving and it's poor. What a question for you and me today. It's Christ's charge of lukewarmness. But now, secondly, I want us to consider what Christ says we should do. Christ's counsels of grace. And I come up with that word counsel from verse 18 when the Lord says, I counsel you. I counsel you. And how kind of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, that he doesn't simply leave the church in its condition and say, you guys are hopeless. I have no word for you at all. But rather, he, as it were, comes beside them. And he gives them the counsel that they need to hear. And friends, it's counsel that we should listen to. Verse 14 tells us who it is that is giving us this counsel. These are the words of the Amen. That word uh, simply means truly, the true one. Uh, Jesus would often say, Amen, Amen, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. And Jesus is the Amen. He is the true one. In fact, he is the faithful and the true witness. The one who testifies truly. And the reason he can testify truly is because he is the beginning of God's creation. That doesn't mean that he's the first one who was created, of course. The rest of the Bible, in fact, Colossians 1, would be a good place to go. makes it clear that all things were created through him and for him. And so saying he's the beginning of creation means that he is the one through, uh, in whom things find their origin. He is the one by whom all things were created. And think about that, the one who put the stars in their places, who created this vast earth, who even put you together and formed you. He is the one here who is giving counsel unto you on how you, how, what you ought to do. And so we ought to pay heed to the counsel of this one. If it was just me giving counsel, I'd say, go home, have a good afternoon. Okay, but this is the Lord Jesus. What does he counsel us with? Four different things, he says, ultimately. Four different counsels of grace. And the first of those is this. It is what I'm calling a gracious sale. A gracious sale. S-A-L-E, that is. We find this in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me 
gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may uh, see. As we mentioned earlier, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. But despite all of their wealth, their real condition, as verse 17 says, is that they were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. They had deep spiritual needs. And they were spiritual needs which could not be met by their material wealth. And so what does he counsel them to do? First of all, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Okay, the city of Laodicea boasted of a great banking industry. It was a city of extraordinary wealth. And yet Jesus says, you will not find in any of the bank accounts, in any of the gold or silver of the city, the kind of wealth that will make you eternally rich. Where do you find that? Well, it is in the salvation that is given to us in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone that we are made rich. As we experience from Him the forgiveness of our sins and justification through Christ and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that works a godly character in us. That's where true riches are to be found. Well, similarly, he says, Clothe yourselves in white garments so that you may clothe, or buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, Laodicea also was a city of, uh, of a great textile industry. They actually featured a special type of, of black wool that could be found in Laodicea. So it was one of the great uh, fashion centers, as it were, of that region of the world. People had clothes. They had lots of nice clothes. Their closets were full. But Jesus says those kinds of clothes are going to do you no good when it comes to what your spiritual need is. In reality, you are one who is naked. You're pitiable. You're poor. You are naked. And what do you need to be clothed in? You need to be clothed in the white garments that only I can provide. And ultimately, dear friend, of course, that is Christ's perfect righteousness. His are the white garments that we need. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. It's flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Dear friends, it's the white garments that alone the Lord can provide, the white garments of His righteous life that you and I need to be covered in. Well, not only do we need uh, the, the spiritual riches, not only do we need the white garments that He can provide, but the third thing He says to buy is to buy the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, very interestingly here also, Laodicea uh, was an educational center. They had a medical school, including a school of ophthalmology. They didn't call it that, but it was a school of ophthalmology, essentially, in Laodicea. And they boasted of a special kind of medicinal lotion that would help to cure eye problems. So, boy, if any city you can see in, it was the city of Laodicea. And he's saying, no, you're in reality, you're blind. 
You think you can see, but you're blind. And you're blind to the things that matter most. You're blind to the glory of God. And to the value of the death of Jesus Christ. You're blind to the reality of His law and its calls for obedience. You're blind to the glories of the kingdom. And that's why you're living as you are. And so what is their need? Their need is that they would become spiritually discerning so that they might see and understand God's truth. And friends, it's the same needs that we have today. No matter your material prosperity, here are the things which you must buy. The spiritual riches, the white garments of His uh, righteousness, spiritual, uh, the spiritual discernment of, spirit, of, of, of true eyesight. Oh friends, these are the things that you and I uh, need. But Jesus Christ says, buy these things. Well, you say, how? How do I buy these things? Don't they cost too much? Well, there is a real sense in which, yes, they do cost far too much. Too much for any of us to purchase. I don't care how much money you have in your bank account. Okay, the Elon Musks of the world don't have enough to purchase these things. These are things that can only be purchased one way, and that is by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ who died on Calvary to secure for us every spiritual blessing in Him. But friends, the fact that Jesus Christ has purchased them through His death means that they are freely available for every single person who looks to Him in faith. So what does Jesus say to you to do? To come, in the words of Isaiah chapter 55, 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here, come, buy the richest spiritual blessings at no cost to yourself but simply a look of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. I simply ask you, do you know what that is? To come to Jesus Christ with that empty hand of faith. And to come over and over and over again, looking for the riches which He alone provides. Friends, true riches are not found in the things of this world, but are found in Jesus Christ alone. Look to Him, trust in Him, believe upon Him, alone to secure these things. It's a gracious sale. A sale which cost Him everything. Costs us nothing. As we come to Him in faith. Second thing that we have is a gracious rebuke. This is a second counsel that Christ gives. It's a gracious rebuke. We see this in verse 19. Verse 19, it says there that those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and, rep and repent. Uh, Jesus is here giving uh, the motivation behind his rather sharp indictment in verses 15 through 17. He's saying to them this, the reason I am telling you that you are nauseating to me and I want to spit you out isn't because I have some vendetta against you. It's not because, it's, it's not like um, 
you know, it's not like he just simply wants nothing to do with them, that he can't stand them or something like that. No. It's not the venom here of a kind of anger or hatred, but rather the expression of love that they would ever hear a warning like this. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. It's just like parents. Why do you, as parents, correct your own children? It's because you desperately love them and you want to see them walk in the paths that are right. If we didn't love them, we would say, just do whatever you want. It doesn't bother me. We discipline them. And children, know this. Your parents discipline you because they love you and love you desperately. They want to see you walk in the ways that are right. Well, dear friends, that's the same reason that the Lord Jesus does. And that he even sends us warnings in the scripture. He tells us this so that we will understand our true spiritual condition and and we will want to turn to him. And so the the key thing is, is that when we hear this from the Lord and our own spirits are convicted, that we don't get defensive and say, well, aren't you being a little harsh, Lord? If that's the way you're going to treat me, I don't want to hear it from you. Or when a Christian friend or a pastor says, you know, I think you're being captivated by the world. Where's your love for Jesus, it doesn't burn in the way that you once did. And you say, well, who are you to judge? I don't want to hear this from you. Well, you just think you're better than me, huh? That's why you're saying this to me. Well, friends, that's a defensive response. And you're turning your back on a warning of love. Rather, when that is said to us, we need to examine our own hearts and say, is this true? And if it is true, maybe I do need to repent. And turn back to the Lord. And that's what he tells them. Repent. Be zealous again and repent. It's still the day of salvation. Turn again uh, to the Lord. Just like a father's discipline, the Lord's discipline is one of the best things that can ever happen to us, even though it is painful. Because it leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he gives us here a gracious rebuke. A third thing, though, is this. It's a gracious invitation. A gracious invitation. We find this in verse 20. Behold, the Lord Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, sadly, this verse has been uh, the subject of a fair bit of misinterpretation. And usually it's misinterpreted in this way, that this is, people say this is sort of a summary of all that the Bible teaches about salvation. Uh, That Jesus is just ready to save all people, but he's only going to knock at the door, and ultimately it's up to you or to me uh, to, to come in and to be saved. Well, the Bible says a lot of other things as well about what we would call spiritual inability. Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our sin and transgression. Okay, that none of us, John 6, can come uh, uh, to the Father unless we are drawn. Okay, that we need to be spiritually awakened. We need to experience the gift of regeneration, a new heart that we would ever respond to the Lord in faith. Okay, the Bible teaches that clearly. But nonetheless, what uh, Revelation 3.20 is saying is a couple of things and vitally important and vitally encouraging things 
to this church in Laodicea and to us as well. First of all, there's a sense in which this verse stands as a kind of wake-up call. The Laodiceans have so dishonored Christ through their complacency that he is no longer in the midst of the church, but he is standing outside. That should have woken them up. Wow. But there's also here a very gracious promise. The Lord Jesus here is saying that I am knocking. And by this knocking, it means that he is holding out the gospel invitation and the gospel promise to this church. He is speaking to them just in the same way that he speaks to us. Every Lord's Day, whenever God's word is preached, it is, as it were, Christ's voice speaking. He is knocking. Okay. Similarly, uh, every time that we open up the word of God and read it, and there the Lord Jesus tells us of the glories of, the per- of his person and of his work and of his kingdom, he is, as it were, knocking. There is a sincere gospel offer in the Bible. And the good news is that when we believe upon the Lord Jesus by His grace, by the power of His Holy Spirit, when we believe upon Christ, what we find is when we what we find when we believe is we don't find Jesus on the other side, as it were, with his arms folded, standing far off, saying, You gotta prove yourself now. Rather, that when we believe in him, we find him right there, as it were, on the door, at the door. Eager, ready to save. We find that he is there, ready to enter. Ready to dine with us. What a beautiful uh, illustration this is, the idea of dining. Do you see that? I will come in to him, he, uh, eat with him, and he with me. In the ancient world, uh, dinners weren't, uh, we might say, kind of TV dinners. Uh, You know, it wasn't a bunch of people uh, sitting side by uh, side, uh, you know, for 15 minutes, uh, golfing down something that was quickly microwaved and while staring at a screen or something like that. Rather, dinners were a communal affair. It was a time of deep, intimate, person-to-person fellowship. And in fact, there is perhaps no greater symbol of fellowship than that of a meal. That's why we eat the Lord's Supper together. It's a symbol of our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why heaven is pictured as a marriage supper of the Lamb, because Christ says He will dine with us and we will dine with Him. And do you see that mutual idea to this fellowship? He says that when we hear His voice, when the door is open by faith, He says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's going to be a mutual fellowship. The Lord Jesus entering into the joys and the needs and the concerns of the sinner. And us invited to enter into the joys of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. What a glorious, encouraging promise this is. And you see, this is one of the reasons why we ought to repent of our spiritual complacency It's not only the warning that we are about to be spit out, but it is the invitation that Christ desires to dine with us 
and to have fellowship with us and to give us riches that are beyond compare. So friends, when we continue in our spiritual half-heartedness, what we are doing is rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and the kind of glorious fellowship and communion that could be ours with him. It's a gracious invitation. So we've seen a gracious sale, a gracious rebuke, a gracious invitation. Uh, Fourth and finally then, a gracious enthronement. A gracious enthronement. In fact, each one of these uh, letters to the seven churches has uh, ended with a promise to the one who conquers. Uh, But perhaps this promise to Laodicea is the greatest of them all. It is a promise of spiritual rule in heaven with Christ. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow, what a promise this is. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy, uh, Shasta was the slave boy of a very cruel fisherman in a faraway uh, country. He thought that this cruel fisherman was his father, finds out that he's not, and in fact that he's about to sell him uh, to some uh, wicked nobleman. And so along with a talking horse, or with the encouragement of a talking horse named Bree, Shasta escapes this cruel uh, fisherman, and we won't go into uh, the whole story, but they uh, go away to a place called Tashban. And uh, Shasta is soon confused with somebody named Kor. In fact, later we find out that he really is Kor, the twin brother of the prince of uh, Arkenland. Uh, but what Shasta finds, it seems that it's such a happy ending at this, or a happy ending at this point. He's actually a prince. He's confused to be a prince, but. Uh, but he soon finds that being a king isn't so great after all. Okay, it involves often uh, a lot of responsibility, etc., and uh, other, you know, too many state dinners, too many hard decisions, those kinds of things. I mean, probably for the same reason that I think probably virtually everyone in this room, if offered the presidency of the United States, said, I'll pass. Thank you very much. Not for me. Right? Well, dear friends, when we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, We are called to rule with him. What a glorious promise this is. And we are called to be, as it were, kings and priests unto God, even in this life. By his grace, we have a kind of spiritual dominion. We are to serve Jesus in this world, to rule for him in our families, in our spheres of influence, to exercise a kind of godly rule. But it's hard. It's difficult. But the promise is, dear friends, as we persist with zeal for the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a promise of a future rule. That along with the Lord Jesus Christ in his heavenly kingdom, you and I are going to sit on thrones with him. And as one preacher, Mr. Ramsey, has said, he says this, quote, that to reign with Christ in a world redeemed, that we will then reign with Christ in a world that is redeemed, regenerated, and purified from every vestige of the curse. In that new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, 
in that one great city of the living God descended from heaven, every redeemed soul shall share in a far more glorious dominion than that originally conferred on Adam and lost by the fall. It is a rule where there will be no evil to be restrained and guarded against. It is a, desi- it is a dominion where one desire, one aim, one will pervades every soul, and that will be the will of King Jesus himself. Do you see that for all of the reasons that you and I would not want to be president in this life, oh dear friends, all of those things are going to be taken away in the life to come and there's going to be no highest honor, no higher honor, no higher privilege, no higher joy and sheer delight than it is going to be to rule along with our exalted King, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's these offers of grace, the counsels of grace. So with all of that set before you, a gracious sale, a gracious rebuke, a gracious invitation, a gracious conquest, I simply want you to examine your heart afresh today. What marks your spiritual life now? Is it one where material things have captivated your heart? That's the good life that you want and want desperately. Or is it one where the Lord Jesus Christ has first place? That's the question. Is your life, your religious life, one in which Jesus has been fit into his little areas? That's it. Just He has his spot here and there, but really, ultimately, it's about me, my comfort, my wealth, my making it the way I want to make is, is that ultimately what your life is about? If it is, the Lord Jesus says, repent. Oh, repent. Fall on your face before him. Cry out that you might be taken up fresh with the glories of this Savior and live your whole life for him. It's for him. Might it be that the Lord Jesus would say about none of us that he is ready to spew us out. But having heard this warning today, might it be that we would be those who ultimately conquer and sit down with the Father on his throne. Let the Lord bless this word to our hearts and give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, grant by your grace that we would hear your word. And that where there is lukewarmness, where we are living a lie, where our religion is show, hypocrisy, give us the grace, O oh God, to repent to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe upon Him and to dine with Him and to fellowship with Him and to know of His redeeming love and the riches of His grace. And might we be encouraged by that and then, again, by Your grace, seek to have a life that reflects that to a watching world. Lord our God, wake us up where we need to be waken up, we pray. Do this for Jesus' sake. Uh, Amen.